Hello, beautiful. The most important relationship you'll have your entire life is with you. And I want to ask, how is it going? Be honest with yourself. Are you taking care of your body? What's your relationship like with food? Do you feel like it's a healthy, balanced, truth-based relationship? Or when it comes to food, is there anxiety, shame, stress, and pressure attached to it? I'm your host, Samantha Roberto, and I want to thank you for joining this conversation. We are a space of women empowering women, and each week we feature a new guest to dive into her authentic transitional story because we believe it's important to have these conversations to learn and grow from one another. So if you're new to the space, welcome, and remember to subscribe to get your weekly dose of inspiration. Today I'm chatting with Amy Ritchie. She's a nutritionist who focuses on emotional eating, food psychology, and sustainable weight loss and habit change. She is here to share her personal story of unpacking her relationship with food and dive into the common underlying food patterns that she notices with the women that she helps. If you hear something today that just clicks, screenshot and tag Amy and the Hello Beautiful podcast because we love to hear what you think. And make sure to stay tuned till the end to hear about our special giveaway. So on this note, let's get to it. My dear, what was life like before jumping into the nutrition world? Well, if you had asked teenage me or the mother of teenage me what I would be doing as a career path, this would probably be like the last thing on the list. I was a super picky eater growing up and mostly I just liked some kind of combination of cheese and dough. (laughs) So pizza, poutine, pasta and cheese, that was my jam. And as soon as I graduated, I moved out to Whistler, BC and kind of kept that dietary momentum going (laughs) with all the food out there. So I really was not a healthy eater growing up at all. And food wasn't a huge focus for me or on my radar. Then I decided that I would move to Australia with a boyfriend I was dating at the time. And I had to think about getting out of all of the snowboard clothes I'd been living in for two years and into a bathing suit. My first foray into nutrition was pretty vanity focused, if I'm being Mm -hmm. totally real with you. How old Um, would you have been just to give a framework? I'd be about 20. I moved to us when I was 18. I would have been about 20 at that point. And honestly, I dived into it from like a pretty healthy way at that age. I remember getting my first cookbook that was called the Abs Diet Cookbook. And at that time, all I could do was craft dinner and itchy band noodles, which was my brand of choice for ramen noodles. I started just trying to learn how to cook a little bit, lots of disasters. I remember a really unfortunate soup I tried to make from V8 juice. So it was me kind of just exploring in the kitchen and trying to make some more of my own food and having fun with it, biking more to work. It was, like I said, a pretty healthy transition at that point. The story changes. So I was really just loving learning about nutrition. And when I moved to Australia, I wanted to kind of keep that going. So I applied for a course at Acadia University, which is in Canada. And my intention at the time was to be a dietitian. So I was taking courses there, which was really fun. And then I took a little break and went traveling through India. And I got sick while I was in India. Uh, I don't know if you experienced that in your travels at all. Deli belly. I haven't <laughs> yeah, been to India belly. yet, but I know all about the deli belly. I have a lot of <laughs> friends who've suffered and I'm sorry it happened yeah. to you. But it led to you. So I met with a doctor there. I was also given a list of foods that were neutral, beneficial, and negative for what I was dealing with. I just found that concept very interesting of looking at how foods can be healing and the role that they play with conditions that I would probably not correlate food 
having any impact on. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an Ayurvedic doctor? Yes, okay. I love Ayurvedic medicine. If you want to dive into that too, I love it. So I looked if there was any programs back in Canada that integrated both the Ayurvedic medicine with Western medicine and Western nutrition. And I found a program in Victoria, BC. So I ended up transferring to that school and doing a three-year nutrition program there. Interestingly enough, my issues with food started to develop the more that I started to learn about food. My first year of school, we started to learn about so many different types of diets and so many different foods and the issues with each of those foods. And Mm. then one by one, I started to remove things from my diet to try to create this really clean diet that at the time I would never have described as disordered, but it took a couple years to look back and realize that that's kind of what was happening. I remember taking out gluten, dairy, I was vegan too. And then I decided that nuts were an issue, only organic vegetables with a student budget as well. It was a really, really limited diet. And that's where my over and under eating started around there because it was so restrictive that when I would find something that was junk but I considered clean, I would really overdo it on that food. So it was kind of this back and forward effect of mostly really under eating. Yeah, like not eating, but then when you find something binge eating, is this what you're... Like I would eat, but it would be a kale salad with pumpkin seeds and a little bit of olive oil. It was just the lightest, most pure of what I would consider foods at that time that I would eat. Yeah, it was like a very fear-based approach to food. And Mm -hmm. I've talked to other nutritionists who have gone through similar experiences. Actually, even my dad, who his dad was a doctor, said that when he was in med school, he thought he had like every medical condition. Sometimes the more you know, Mm -hmm. the more you can attach fear to these different things. And it actually took me a couple of years to start to address what was truth and what was more fear-based with food. And it was only when I stepped back and started giving my body space to decide how it felt with these foods rather than let my brain make all the choices that I was able to eat from a much more healthy perspective. I remember saying to myself, is gluten actually bad for my stomach? Does it actually hurt when I eat it? So then I tested it out. Have a little bit of barley, have a little bit of sourdough. Did it hurt? It didn't. And then I kind of applied the same approach to other foods that I'd created all these rules and restrictions around and slowly uncovered that a lot of the fear-based food rules that I had applied were not true. Do you feel that the fear-based rules that you had applied, the underlying fear, was it like trying to be healthy? Was it your, you know, the pressure of being in your early 20s? What Mm. for you was it? Body image? Was it, was there an underlying thing that played factor into that? I think it was weight loss as one. And the other one I think is more identity based. My identity was so tied to being like this vegan yoga nutritionist. And Mm. it seems that someone with that identity shouldn't eat meat and shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that. And I really had to peel that back a little bit Mm -hmm. and look at why I was keeping these things out. And if it was actually true to who I was right now and in my best interest and if these labels were serving me or not. Okay, cool. So you became sort of a scientist with yourself, with your own body and testing Mm. different foods and actually seeing, instead of just adopting some other diet, seeing what actually was true. Yes. And I really try to apply that to my practice now. There can be this very fine line as a nutritionist between helping someone eat healthy, but not helping enable disordered eating. It's this very fine line. If I hear people with a lot of fear and a lot of rules around their food, Often they don't recognize it as that. It's just them trying to eat very clean. And I think it's a pretty slippery slope when you start getting into these really strict eliminations and clean and dirty, good and bad way talking about food. 
How do you see now you're working with women on a daily basis with food? And I feel like I would really like your approach, what's healthy for you. But how do you deal with different body types and figuring out what works for people? I mean, how do you do what you do? I would say the biggest thing is to walk away from like an all or nothing based approach. I feel like the most common scenario I see when a woman comes in for support with weight loss is that they've been on diets either their entire life or most of their life. And if I ask them which diets have worked for them in the past, they may give me a list of diets that have made them lose weight. But when we kind of inquire further as to when the end date of that was and did you gain the weight back, almost always all the weight or more has been gained back and the diets have never lasted. Otherwise, they wouldn't be sitting in front of me. So Mm. what we can kind of glean from that is that none of them worked is the answer Mm. there. Mm. And when I have someone come in, what I don't want to create for them again is a new diet. Even if it's like an individualized diet, right? If we're making food rules, new ones for you, I'm just helping you do the same thing that you've been in a cycle of already. And that's what I want to walk away from. I mean, how do we approach that, right? If someone wants to change their eating and all I'm saying is don't have rules, that's also (laughs) not that helpful. And I acknowledge that. It has to be a little bit of a, a different approach. And I really like to meet my clients exactly where they're at. So if I have someone come in that's eating three meals a day at McDonald's or out and is not cooking at all, I'm not going to be asking them to make three whole foods, unprocessed meals from scratch every day mm-hmm. starting right now. Mm-hmm. Like That's not supportive. But if somebody is, you know, so let's say someone is in that scenario where they're eating out three times a day and don't know how to cook. My approach is probably going to be somewhere closer to, can we start by cooking one meal a day at home? Mm -hmm. Can I provide you with some recipes that are in line with foods that you enjoy? Can we get your water from zero to two cups a day? And can we get your movement from none to a five minute walk when you get home from work? How can we start where you are and start building in some habits that are supportive of your health goals? I'm never going to tell someone your goal will be to lose weight. I'll help you do that in a healthy, sustainable way. I love that. And in a way, taking little steps that aren't too much, you're actually tricking your amygdala, that part of your brain, that fight or flight. And if you take on too much and try to be like, okay, today I'm starting this diet, and then you jump right in, but then it just becomes way too overwhelming and you freak the F out and you're gone (laughs) and you yo-yo way back, you feel way worse. So I do really appreciate that approach. I actually just had a new client that I started working with yesterday. And at the end of our first appointment, she was like, I feel so much more calm that you didn't take away my chips. (laughs) Right. Like we're so used to that when we start trying to do something healthy, that all the things that we love get ripped away from us. I really don't want to start creating any recommendations until I know exactly what your life looks like and what we can fit into that. I also only work with people in three month packages where I'm seeing you every two weeks, either by video or in person, but I'm communicating with you throughout the weeks in between. So when I first see you, I probably have a plan in my mind for you over the next three months, but we're going to do that in actionable stages Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you familiar with the book Atomic Habits? Never heard of it. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite. So Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear, he talks about the Goldilocks zone. And when we're looking at introducing new habits and behaviors, we're aiming for that Goldilocks zone. What that means is the space where it still feels exciting, but doable. What would be on the left of that Goldilocks zone would be telling someone, okay, I want you to just drink one glass of water. That's your only goal for two weeks. That's it. That's all we're doing. Easy. But if I'm telling someone, again, cook all three meals at home, no processed food, only organic, work out five times a week, that's overwhelming. That's inaccessible. It's not helpful. 
Somewhere in the middle might be that spot we talked about where you're cooking one meal. Here's a bunch of recipes. Let's make this very actionable. I want you to touch base with me when you've done that for one week and let's build. Mm -hmm. So there's your Goldilocks zone. There's something that feels like I'm excited to try this, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I can do it. And before someone leaves my office, I want to know, do you feel like you can do the action items that we've set for you? Mm -hmm. And I think food I mean, it's a relationship, what you have with food and how you look at food and how you deal with food. It's an everyday Mm -hmm. relationship you have your whole Mm -hmm. life. And so many people adopt these subconscious habits or patterns Mm -hmm. with food from their parents, from their socioeconomical status when they're young. You don't even realize because it's subconscious. So peeling back Mm -hmm. the layers one by one, it's in my opinion, a a great approach. And there's a lot of research around emotional eating, overeating, obesity being tied to some kind of childhood trauma. I feel like it's really important to have a gentle approach to those situations as well. I'm working with smart women. There's no one that comes into my office and has no idea that McDonald's is less healthy than having salmon and broccoli. The issue is usually not knowing what is the better choice? The issue is usually making it and why you're not making it or why you cannot make it consistently. Those are the pieces that I want to work with people on because those are the hurdles that I see people having is the consistency piece and that piece of being on and off, failing, succeeding, good and bad. And if I can pull someone out of that cycle and have them eating and behaving in a way that is supportive of their health goals 80% of the time, that's incredible. And to me, being able to have a treat once in a while and not feeling guilty about it for a week is a healthier behavior than restricting all the time. When you're doing something and you feel either guilt or shame, it's that energy that lingers that is so negative to our body. That harvesting guilt that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing and Mm -hmm. you feel bad about it is where so much of the damage is actually coming from. Yeah. And then it cycles right back. Now you're feeling guilty or shameful. And what do you do to cope? Often the response is food. And then you're in this cycle that's so hard to get out of. So when looking at emotional eating, we need to look at how those behaviors are driving it too, because often being caught up in this diet cycle is part of what drives the emotional eating. You're either in this last supper effect where it's, okay, I've got this start date where I'm going to be so good. And I've got this big game plan. But until then, I'm going to eat all the things because I'm going to be so good and so restrictive soon. That back and forth effect of the all start Monday and until then, I'm going to go wild. I (laughs) cannot stand buffet mentalities. There's something about it that really irks me. Crap quality food, Mm -hmm. all you can eat. You go Mm -hmm. there and it's just, I want to get my money's worth. So you just shovel it in your mouth and you against the buffet. It drives me nuts. (laughs) Unless it's sushi. There is a lot of research on mindless eating. So if there's perceived variety, if you feel like there's a lot of different options, whether you recognize it or not, you're likely to eat more. They've Mm. seen even that when you give someone different colored M&Ms opposed to all the same color M&M, they're going to eat more. Ah. So if there's more variety, like buffets, potlucks, things like that, we are not as good as being able to evaluate what quantities we need and be as satisfied with how much we took and what we chose if there was so many options available. Going with that, give us three tips that would help our listeners. I don't want to say control, but Mm -hmm. awareness of what they're eating or how much they're eating. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to set up your environment to support your goals, to try to make it really easy to eat well or to eat in line with your goals and make it more out of your way and a little bit more difficult to eat the foods that you want to consume a little bit less of. Not saying that you can't ever have a donut, but not keeping them in your house so that Mm -hmm. when you get home from work and you're stressed and you're tired and you're looking for something, that's not the easy accessible option. 
Looking for cues, a big part of habit building is having something that triggers or reminds you to do that thing. For example, every night when you put the kids to bed, you go to the cupboard right away and then sit on the couch with a bag of chips. Your cue in that situation is your kids going to bed. All the moms out there, you work so hard, you deserve reward. And sometimes the food becomes that. Replacing or adding something else in there so that you have a new habit that you're letting that cue trigger can be super supportive. For example, you make it a goal that when you put the kids to bed, you go and do yoga for 10 minutes, or you take the dog for a walk around the block, or you journal, or you call a friend. There's something else that you put in that spot so that we're adding something in versus constantly removing. I think that's a big part of my approach. What can we add into your life to make the role of the processed stress type foods less? How do we make those things needed less Mm -hmm. and have less time and space for them rather than just trying to say, don't eat them? Mm -hmm. It's really important to set up your environment to support that and look for those ways that you can have those cues in your nightly patterns. And I say nightly and evening because that's usually where the overeating, (laughs) emotional eating or eating the types of foods we don't want to be consuming is happening is in the The stress of the day. You're just like, I deserve this. And you go to your fridge. Yeah. I don't care who you are. Everyone has been there. Everybody knows this feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's also the time where we usually have the most free idle time is once we get home from work and then before we go to bed. That's when we're kind of sitting around and we're letting, like you said, the emotions and the stresses of the day build up on us. Part of the work here in addressing emotional eating and changes with diet, again, is not just trying to focus on what you're not going to consume and what you're going to take away. It's looking at the role that those foods are playing in your life and seeing if there's things that are more supportive that you can bring in to address those emotions. Looking at patterns. You're noticing that the pattern in the evening is that you're feeling bored or frustrated or stressed and that's always when you turn to the treats in your cupboard. Okay, a bit of compassion there around your life and what's causing those things. But now sit with that a little bit. What does that feel like? What's causing it? Is there anything you can do to address the causes of those emotions? If so, do those. If not, are there other things you can bring in that help take you out of that sensation when you're feeling it? I think that a craving is really just like a desire to feel something different internally. And food's really good at making us feel different. It has the perfect combination, a lot of processed foods of sugar, salt, fat, that really (laughs) spike like those feel-good hormones, our dopamine, our serotonin. It works. When you're feeling like crap, it works just very momentarily. It's so interesting when you're saying that and picturing myself looking in the cupboard. And if I was to actually (laughs) see something bad and just label it sugar or salt, just awareness of what it actually is, Mm -hmm. it would help me Mm -hmm. kind of not just automatically go to it and crave Mm -hmm. that. So we're talking lots about personally going through emotional eating. But what would you suggest to somebody who's listening who is observing someone, whether it's a friend, a family member, who they can see is struggling with emotional eating or struggling with an eating Mm -hmm. disorder? How would you recommend someone help? So I'll stick with emotional eating rather than than disordered eating just because that's outside my scope. For emotional eating, I would say start with asking how they're doing from a place of really deep wanting to know and wanting to sit and listen. I don't think I've ever had somebody come in to my office or that I've worked with that has self-identified as emotionally eating that doesn't have something going on in their life, Mm -hmm. doesn't have some kind of stressor, feel like they're not being supported or feeling like they're bearing the weight of the world, especially women. And I say that because I mostly work with women. I don't want to take guys out of that equation. But the Mm -hmm. women that I work with are carrying so many plates. They're the mom, they're the employee, they're the wife, they're the friend, they're the aunt, they're the grandma. They have so much going on that Sometimes food is the one area in their life that they have a little bit of control or if they've got some power there, it's just about them. 
If someone in your life is dealing with that, I would, yeah, ask how they're doing, what you can do to help, how they're feeling. I don't think it's ever appropriate to address somebody's weight unless they've come to you to talk about it. But if you're seeing that they're struggling or they've said to you, this is a behavior I'd like to stop or I'm feeling very out of control, yeah, I would ask them how they're doing and maybe engage in some behaviors together that are in line with their goals. You know, I've been wanting to eat a bit better too. Why don't we cook some dinners together? Or I've been wanting to be more active too. Why don't we sign up for a yoga class together? How can you be there in community and support for that person versus just pointing out their flaws? It's all so relevant. It's all so important and it's looking at the stuff underneath the surface what is going on underneath dealing with the root cause and then from there making the changes that is like a big part of the message that i want to get across it's not that i only am going to work on the emotional aspects of things with you but you won't get to a place where you're successful long term unless you also address those things while we're doing that i also want to give you actionable things to do that you can bring into your life to support your health goals and the food changes that you want to make. I run an online program, Real Food Reset, every couple of months that I absolutely love running. I've been running it for two years now. And half of it is about food choices. You're given recommended snacks and meal plans, but a lot of it is about the community support around it. Everyone's starting at the same day. Everyone's supporting each other. Everyone's celebrating each other's wins. Everyone's sharing their challenges and being lifted up in those moments and seeing that they're not alone in dealing with those things. And I try to give a lot of autonomy to people in those programs. Here is the meals I want you to prep for this week. If you are still hungry, I want you to eat. If you are not hungry and don't need that last snack, don't have it. Mm -hmm. If you don't like broccoli, have something else. Here's some structure when you're feeling like life is so disorganized and chaotic. Amy, please just tell me what the heck to eat because I get that energy from people sometimes too. And I will tell you, but I will also tell you that when you are craving something different, when something different is available, when a social situation comes up, when you're starving, change. Change the plan I've given you. Talk to me. Let me help you tweak it. I don't want you to grit your teeth and bear through it because we're trying to establish long lasting dietary changes, not just something for two weeks. Honor your body is what I'm getting. It's just really tune in, feel, and honor your body. And I really like that you bring up the community aspect because I think it's so important. Loneliness is something that so many people struggle with in different areas of their life. And to be able to have a community to have support as you're going through making shifts, Mm -hmm. positive Mm -hmm. shifts in your life, it's, you know, it, it can be very, very beneficial. And there's such a shame aspect often to how I hear people talking about their eating behaviors. I sneak food or I eat well in front of other people, but when I'm alone, I gorge. Even people like hiding food from their husband or their kids, there's this really dark energy to it sometimes. And when you have a community of women working together towards those goals that are being open and honest and vulnerable throughout it, it yanks away that shame. And I think it's Brene Brown who says shame cannot grow in the light, right? That dark shame monster can only grow when it's pushed down. And Mm -hmm. shame feeds addiction, food addiction too. If you're feeling shameful, it's going to cycle you right back into that. So the community aspect of people saying, I've been there, me too, is more powerful and it's medicine to this process as well. And I want to bring that up too and highlight that because you mentioned the shame, it is within your body. And when you push it down, you're just pushing it deeper and creating Mm. more pressure within that area. But when you, even just saying it, even just admitting it, even just Mm. writing it down, actually giving that shame a space to breathe, it dissolves and it starts changing. It starts going away. And that is super, 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 super powerful work. It's so hard. So hard. Mm. But it can also be really easy. It depends on how we label it. So often we want to stay comfortable. We have these boxes that we're in Mm -hmm. and 
it can be very uncomfortable when you step outside of it or when you push yourself outside of it or when you try something new. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing that, we just stay within this framework. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. And I couldn't agree more that you don't grow or connect really in your comfort zone. It's only when you expose those vulnerabilities, which I'm kind of new to. I'm really working on it because (laughs) I ask it of my clients and the women that I work with every day. So I do it right back. If I'm asking someone else to share and be vulnerable, then I'm also going to do the same in my life. And it's true that deep connection is made that way. And when we share the things that we're actually feeling like embarrassed or shameful or scared of, that's when we meet the people that can support us through those. Or maybe the people that are in our life already can. But if they don't know what's going on for us or what we're actually feeling about a situation, including food um, related issues, then they can't support us and help through it. So I am the queen of discomfort. I love immersing <laughs> myself in new environments. I've, and not always. A yeah. few years ago, I was in a little bit of my box and it was really scary. Mm-hmm. But the more I stepped out, I was just like, holy shit, this space mm-hmm. is fun. I want to mm-hmm. grow. I want to learn. And that's actually why I created this platform. We can have this conversation. You can share mm-hmm. your vulnerable stories, what you learn. And by doing so, whoever it is that's tuning in and listening, it's like, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe it's okay for me to share too. And when they step into the space of sharing and being vulnerable, you'd be surprised of the other people who could be silently suffering with XYZ as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've been more vulnerable in my early 20s than I am now. In a public forum, sometimes I have this fear that if I share what I'm struggling with, it's going to become a topic of conversation with the clients that I work with. And I don't want my interactions with them in a helping role to become about me. That has always been this fine line that I've balanced. Mm -hmm. I do want to share my experiences with anxiety. I want to share my experiences with feeling like not enough or the imposter syndrome. I want to share all of that, but I don't ever want to share so much that when someone comes in, they spend their appointment asking how I'm doing. It's okay to share. So let's share right now. Tell me about your anxiety. (laughs) Let's talk. (laughs) This is what we're here for. (laughs) Well, it was actually in Whistler when I had my first panic attack. I will say a trigger warning right now because I know there's sometimes I've heard people's stories Mm -hmm. and I find it triggering. The first time that I had it, I was in a small auditorium in Whistler listening to, I think it was the CEO of WestJet, like give some kind of keynote speech to the management for Whistler Blackcomb. And I was sitting middle row, Mm -hmm. halfway up. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I felt like I needed to escape. That's probably the most clear way I could express it at that point was I needed to escape. I needed to get out. I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my skin. I felt Mm -hmm. like I was having a heart attack. I just needed to leave, but it would be very obvious and inappropriate if I got up and left. That would have been my first panic attack. I sat there for half an hour, dripping sweat, not knowing how to stop it, but being like, I could be dying, but I'm not really sure what to do with this. Mm -hmm. I definitely did not have the vocabulary to explain or understand what it was at that time. And then a couple of days later, the same thing happened. This time it was just walking home from the lake or something like that in Whistler. Nothing specific happened. And then I went to a doctor and she diagnosed me with generalized anxiety disorder. Anxiety didn't mean anything to me at that time. If you had asked me my definition of anxiety, I'd be like, oh yeah, I get like nervous all the time. Like Mm -hmm. I get worried about stuff. But for me, my anxiety was very physical, Mm -hmm. heart racing, sweating, feeling dizzy, just feeling like I needed to get out of whatever space I was in. It's like everything's on edge. Mm -hmm. 
I went on medication for a while. That was the only option presented to me at the time. And Mm -hmm. I feel like whatever choice people make for their mental health, if you're dealing with it, fantastic. I never have any shame or judgment to how someone chooses to deal with it. I found the medications had other effects that I didn't want to continue. I felt like it kind of blunted other emotions for me too, not Mm -hmm. just the edge of the anxiety. So I ended up tapering off those with my mom's help, who's a pharmacist. So don't do it on your own. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this kind of ties into where I started learning about nutrition. It was also around this time. And then I became fascinated with trying to learn as much as I could about brain health and how nutrition and lifestyle interventions can positively impact brain health, specifically anxiety, because that's what I was dealing with. I introduced as many of those things as I could, and I was able to keep panic attacks away. I didn't have another panic attack for probably seven or eight years. It was Mm -hmm. a long time. Mm -hmm. So I know that when I bring in the proper lifestyle, dietary, self-care into my life, I can feel the anxiety sometimes, but I don't pathologize it in the same way that I used to. It's like part of my personality and it will be with me, but now I kind of use it as information. So sometimes when I feel those sensations, I'm like, okay, is there something I'm about to do that I really don't want to do? Is there a person that I'm about to be around that really negatively impacts me or an environment that I just need to say no to going to? But option number two is, am I just excited? Because sometimes it feels the same. And if anyone's dealt with anxiety, the sensation of excitement is the same as anxiety. There's just fear attached to anxiety. So sometimes when I explore what the emotion is, and this means sitting with it, and this is super uncomfortable when you feel anxiety (laughs) revving up and you just sit and feel it. Mm -hmm. But when you do that, sometimes you uncover that you're actually just revved up and excited for it. Um, I'm getting married this summer and I was telling my fiance that I'm really nervous for the ceremony and standing up there in front of everyone. And he's like, Amy, it's all of our best friends. We're just at camp. We're just hanging out at camp with our best friends, getting married. That's exciting. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Like That is exciting. I'm actually not anxious. I'm just super excited. So I think there's a lot of messages that come with anxiety Mm -hmm. um, that if you can sit with and listen to and you have the tools and time and resources to address anxiety in other ways, it can be really powerful, which I definitely understand that not everyone does. Well, and I did bring in therapy at that time too. I should say that, that that was a super powerful tool. And speaking about it, telling my friends, if I'm sitting at a table with my friends and I start to feel anxious, like I will say, I'm feeling a bit anxious and the energy just strips away from it. I love that you're saying this because there's so much truth and I really believe everything behind that. The awareness piece is number one, the awareness of the energy within you, listening to your body talk to you. Where are those nerves coming from? Is this my intuition kind of yeah. being like tap, tap, tap? Amy, I'm trying to guide you. I can, <laughs> on a subconscious level, pick up that you're going into in a situation that's not going to be for the highest, best you, you know, I'm just trying to give you some warning signs or you're excited, but just listening to your body is the number one. Mm -hmm. Listen to your body, honor your body. And as you do, you can change that deeper relationship Mm -hmm. that you have. When you go there to that route, all of a sudden your relationships will change with your family, with your friends, with your food, work, what you're passionate mm-hmm. about. It's literally your entire life can blossom like a flower. Yeah, I couldn't sort agree of. more. And that ties in the anxiety piece with the emotional eating piece. Both of those, the answer was sit with it, listen to your body and take steps to address those things. Not like numb and <laughs> look for those quick comforts, which occasionally no problem while you're figuring it out. No judgment. No judgment. There's worse things that you could be doing to cope with it than eating. You're not doing drugs. There's a lot of other unhealthy behaviors you could be engaging in besides food. Take a little bit of the judgment away from that if once in a while you do overeat or emotionally eat to deal with something. 
or no judgment period. So even if you are going to alcohol, even if you are honestly going to drugs, no judgment for where you are, period. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even though there are worse things you can do, it's just really learn to have no judgment where you are. Just be aware of where you are. Acknowledging, sitting with it, here's where I am. But if it's a place where you're not feeling good and you're feeling uncomfortable and you're not wanting to sit with that anymore, okay, what can you do? Start small. What's one step you can take tonight or tomorrow to move you out of that? And it might be uncomfortable, it might be vulnerable, but probably sitting where you are right now is more uncomfortable. Okay, so to close off, I am just wondering, give us three of your personal self-care, self-love tips. The one that I started in the last month that has changed my energy and stress more than anything, I take my phone at nine o'clock And I put it in my office and I don't look at it again until I've done some stuff in the morning and started my day. My phone is, it's not only social media to me, it's my work. My emails come there, my messages from the groups I run, everything. I would constantly be receiving information. And then if I woke up in the night to look at the time, then I'm seeing it all again. First thing in the morning, I see it all again. And there was never a time that I felt like I was totally off and away from Mm it. Mm -hmm. So That step that I've wanted to get just an alarm clock, I have a sunrise alarm, which is also amazing, has been a game changer. I can't believe how much that has affected my life, just getting my phone out of my room and having business hours ending because I'm self-employed. I don't have business hours, so I usually always work. This was major for me. Well, and if you think about it, if we go back, technology's only come into maybe even 20 years. We've been working the way we're working. Now with technology in the past 10 years, even after work and the long work days, you're literally on your phone all the time. Biologically, it just doesn't fit. And blue light also suppresses melatonin. So it's going to affect your sleep. There are night modes and apps you can install to make your backlight orange. So you have to be on your screen do that and it'll help. I've got blue light blockers. So I've got, I was just looking for them. I don't know where they had the glasses. So I sometimes at night just go around with my orange glasses. They're fantastic. Swanick is the brand that I got. They're really great. So what is number two? Okay. Number two, yoga. I've had waves of my life where yoga has been a big part of it. I'm actually a yoga teacher as well. I'm not teaching right now, but it's something that I have done. I started about two months ago with a daily yoga practice and I do yoga every single day now. I don't have hard and fast rules around what that has to look like. Another one of the things from Atomic Habits, standardize before you optimize, get something into place before you worry about it being perfect. Mm -hmm. So sometimes all I have time and energy for is a five minute relaxation yoga before bed. Other times I'm energized. I want to get my butt kicked. I'm going to do like a 90 minute power yoga, but I do something every day that I breathe and I move my body. You hit the mat. Cool. I like it. I have my yoga teacher training too. I just think it's a phenomenal, a phenomenal medium. So yeah, it helps you deepen your own like practice so much when you've done the training too. I love it. And then number Um, three? The third one has to be around food, right? So for me, listening to my body and eating foods that nourish it, but also being organized. Even though I know what foods I want to eat and I feel like I eat in a way that nourishes my body every day, I've really got the food thing down for myself right now. But if I have a busy week and I haven't plans and I haven't grocery shopped, then I'm going to come home at seven o'clock at night and be scrounging something out of the cupboard or just making something that's not balanced or just not eating because I can't be bothered. So I feel like eat a balanced diet. That looks different for everyone. So I'm not going to go too much more into depth than that. And then try to have a little bit of thought into, especially during your busy times, what your food is going to look like because Mm -hmm. it's going to feel a lot different and a lot more stressful. And you have to eat either way so you can grit through it and think of it as a chore for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Or you can try to bring a bit of a different energy into it and think of it as self-care and Mm -hmm. as a habit that you want to really bring into your weekly practice and making sure that that's something that supports you through the week. I love it. Oh my gosh. Amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Those are all 
awesome tips. I stand behind all of them. And uh, you've got a challenge coming up in a couple months, you said, in March? Yeah, the, it's a, I run them every couple months. It's a four-week real food reset. So well, like I said, you will get the plans and the structure, but you will be also learning more in depth about everything we've talked about today and how you can still have power and control within the structure of a meal plans. It's definitely to set the stage for long-term results. So if people <laughs> want to connect with you, where is the best way to do that? So you can find me on Instagram at nutrition by Amy on my website, nutritionbyamy.ca, not .com, .ca. <laughs> We're in Canada, people. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. All right, there you have it. What did you guys think? Isn't Amy amazing? I really love her approach to food and honoring your body, trying different things, testing it out, just listening to how your body is reacting to the different foods you incorporate and what you do. So if you found anything in this episode, like an aha moment, we love to hear what you think. Screenshot the Hello Beautiful podcast and tag us and Amy uh, in your stories and tell us your takeaways. And as a gift to you and your loyalty for the podcast, we're actually going to be doing a giveaway this week. So if you're tuning in right now, don't forget, go to Instagram and take a look at the contest details for your chance to win not one, but two spots in Amy's upcoming reset. So it's a pretty exciting thing. Um, you're going to be in an amazing container if that happens to be you. So go check out Instagram and do what you got to do to enter the contest and maybe, who knows, you'll be the lucky winner. Each week we feature a new episode with a, a new authentic vulnerable story. So make sure to subscribe before you leave. And until then, keep being you, be beautiful.